This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Talking, of course, about the coronavirus pandemic. We have all been warned. Number of infections going up again across the country. Now, winter approaching. Uh, Medical experts fearful of just how severe a second wave may be. All 50 states supposed to turn in their COVID vaccine distribution plans by the end of this week. But instead, the CDC is getting a lot of complaints about a lack of guidance. Turns out pandemics are pretty good for the profit margins of the health insurance companies. 2020 proving to be a boom year for the insurance industry. Fire departments and EMS agencies have been on the front lines of the outbreak, in addition to many of them frequently coming in contact with infected patients. Fire crews have to fight numerous wildfires all across the country while fighting COVID-19. Now, fire agencies are deploying new tactics to protect their firefighters from the deadly virus. And first it was toilet paper. Now it's air filtration. We know the virus can spread around the air, so Americans scrambling to get their hands on purifiers. Even the high-end, pricey ones are flying off the shelves. It seems like the world is under siege and the attacker is the novel coronavirus in the U.S. and abroad. European countries that emerged from strict lockdowns are seeing spikes in infections and hospitalizations, while in the Midwest and southern U.S., hospitals are starting to run out of space. Dr. Michael Minna, epidemiologist, immunologist at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, member of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. So, doctor, how do you characterize what we're dealing with right now? Things have certainly uh, gone in the wrong direction in a lot of Europe at the moment. Uh, And what we're seeing now in the United States is the beginning of a very similar event where we're really seeing ramp up of cases uh, occurring all across the United States at the moment. And this is reflected, uh, reflective of of opening up restaurants and going back to school and social distancing kind of getting, uh, becoming less and less as people want to open things up. And then I feel fairly strongly that this is also reflective of uh, changes in, in the weather and the way that people are, are able to necessarily congregate indoors versus outdoors. So this was expected, but the trouble is over the summer we were supposed to do what? Get the daily cases as low as possible. So when the inevitability came that we would start going up, we were doing that from a low level, but that has not been achieved in a lot of spots, right? That, that's exactly right. I, I look at this uh, very much. Uh, I, I look at the, the United States like a, like a large forest with a lot of leaves on the ground. Uh, and these leaves are all uh, these susceptible individuals across this country. And what we saw in the spring was uh, a few sparks on the perimeter uh, started all of these flames up and the, those would be the, the, the community spread. Uh, but now what we have is uh, a buildup of leaves and, and small sparks that are just uh, being ignited everywhere across the country instead of just on the perimeter, really waiting to combust. And, and we, we needed to get cases much lower before this fall if we wanted to be in a good position right now. So uh, I guess it's time to be really brutally frank. Um, there's not much appetite in many parts of this country for even targeted lockdowns, let alone broader lockdowns. Certainly there's disagreement about 
wearing masks. Uh, same thing in, in Europe. Uh, you have that declaration. We talked about this the other day on our, on our show. We had one of the signers, a number of scientists who say, well, you shouldn't lock down at all. Just let it play out. Is that how this is going to honestly unfold now? Because we're not going to get a vaccine in the next few months. We all know that. Uh, are we just destined to have an ever-increasing infection rate, more and more people sick, more and more people die until maybe in a year or so enough people are vaccinated that we have some kind of immunity that brings it to a halt? Well, I, I certainly hope that we do not go that direction. Uh, my hope is that masks and, and social distancing without necessarily economic lockdown can go a very long way. But there's another approach too, and this is something I've talked a lot about for months, and that is uh, the, the deployment of, a, of tests that can be performed uh, rapidly and at home. And these tests can effectively serve in lieu of a vaccine, or at least to bridge us until a vaccine arrives, by severing transmission chains, cutting off transmission chains by letting people know early that they are infected before they have a chance to really go out and spread to others. We could deploy massive numbers of these paper strip tests to places that are hot zones or places where outbreaks are occurring currently, and, and through that be able to control the outbreak in a way that we currently haven't really done well without economic uh, lockdowns. Dr. Michael Minna, epidemiologist, immunologist, Harvard Jan School of Public Health, a member of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. All 50 states are supposed to turn in COVID vaccine distribution plans to the CDC by the end of this week. And while there is some framework for how states plan to get vaccinations out to you and me quickly, there are also a lot of complaints and concerns that they simply do not have the guidance or resources to get it all done. Dr. Erwin Redlener directs the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative, Professor of Health Policy Management, Columbia University Medical Center. So, Doctor, tomorrow was supposed to be the day, but uh, looks like we got a long way to go. Yeah, there's a tremendous number of challenges, Jonathan, with uh, getting this done, really, and the logistics of implementing a program for vaccinating people that people are already nervous about, number one. But number two, the vaccine itself, the ones that are more likely to be out earlier, uh, require two doses, uh, three to four weeks apart. And uh, they also require extreme low temperatures for the manufacture, transport and so on and storage of the vaccines. We're talking about like minus 112 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So this is no easy task. And it's complicated by the fact that where will these vaccines actually be administered? Who's going to be giving them? Some talk about National Guard helping, but I am uh, concerned, frankly, because there are many, many areas of the United States, including California and every other state, that are called health professional shortage areas where there's just a paucity of medical clinics where people can go to get any kind of care, including vaccination. So this is a monumental task. And uh, the more uh, a state, any individual state, has a large underserved uh, population, the more difficult it's going to be to actually get the vaccines into people's arms. Yeah. So what is a state to do when they're facing this deadline and maybe they're still working on it and we don't know what the plans look like yet, other than saying to the federal government, uh, how can you help us? Yeah, that's what they should be saying. And, uh, you know, this last eight or nine months has been nothing but, uh, you know, disorganized messages, impossible uh 
plans uh, and, uh, you know, real um, you know, misleading of the public about what the reality is. So I, I don't even know whether the, the states actually believe the federal government has the capacity or the desire uh, to help them get these vaccines out there. But, the, of course, the other underlying issue is, will the vaccine that is chosen or the vaccines that are chosen, will they be effective and will they be safe? And that's a question that's still obviously up in the air. We had two of the vaccine trials now on pause because of potential serious medical complications. So I think we have a long way to go before we get um, anywhere close to um, an actual plan that's operational. All right, but let's uh, but let's say, yeah. for the sake of argument, uh, let's say one or more of the vaccines currently in their phase three trials, they get, I guess it would be emergency authorization from the FDA to start uh, right. distributing their vaccines. Let's say that does happen, the authorization anyway, before the end of, of this year, maybe sometime around you know December. Uh, yeah. In your view, when would, considering that we still don't have these different state plans really in place, when would most people be able to reasonably, if they wanted to, be able yeah. to get a vaccine? Sure, and that's the key question. So the first thing is that um, once the EUA is authorized, the, the, the uh, manufacturer will be ready to sort of really gear up and produce, you know, 10, 20, 25 million doses. And those are all going to go to uh, high-priority individuals. It might be first responders or people at very high risk. By the time you and your family or me and my family will be able to actually get the vaccine, I don't think we're going to, that's going to happen before uh, the middle or really towards the end of 2021, to be realistic about it. And that's assuming that we have no more glitches or pauses uh, that will be coming at us. Dr. Erwin Redlener directs the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative Professor, Health Policy Management at Columbia University Medical Center. 2020 been a banner year for health insurance companies, which at first you might think is kind of a weird thing to happen in the middle of a pandemic. But with so many of us staying home and skipping all kinds of medical exams and procedures, insurance companies are just reaping the benefits. Douglas Heller, consultant and insurance experts at the Consumer Federation of America. So Douglas, is that what it is? We're staying home. We're not going to appointments. So we're not sending in claims. Well, that's that's exactly right. And it's been as you said, just a banner year for the health insurance companies because the premiums that we pay and our employers pay for our health insurance is based on the expectations they had going back to 2019 when they set the, they set the rates. But then the world changed and we were all stuck at home. And I think a lot of um, people may have been familiar with what the auto insurance companies did. Uh, a lot of them were required to give back money to us because we weren't driving so much. And that's sort of intuitive when we're stuck at home. Less intuitive is what's been going on with our health care. Uh, you know, everybody's talking about COVID, and of course, there's been a lot of money spent on that. But that doesn't compare to how much has been saved because we're not going for uh, a lot of our uh, regular appointments. We've actually seen a decrease, and it's still kind of unexplained, a decrease in heart attacks, strokes. You can understand there aren't as many broken bones because if kids aren't in school, there aren't going to be, uh, you know, a broken wrist at the emergency room as much. And so you've been, had this sudden drop off in claims activity, which means that we've all paid too much for the past year. Now, the difference with the health insurers and the auto insurers, even though the auto insurers didn't give back enough, I don't think, based on my research, they at least gave back something somewhere in the range of $12 billion. The health insurers are sitting on most of this windfall that they've received. And 
you know, everybody's struggling right now. They should have been giving it back. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, I, I mean, most most people uh, I know, uh, myself included, I mean, you know, rates are going up in 2021. Uh, deductibles are going up. The share that you pay for drugs. Everything is is going up as if the insurance companies are losing money. Well, that's and that's really outrageous, and it's been one of the big frustrations that a lot of uh, you know us consumer advocates have, as we we look at how much people are paying for insurance that they're not using, and the idea that these companies, who you know, if you look at the major companies over the last couple of uh, last two quarters, their profits have increased about a hundred percent, doubling what they made last year, uh, and it was a typical year last year. So. They're doubling their profits and then piling on with higher rates. Now, the, the way some of the insurance companies argue it is that under the Affordable Care Act, there is a provision that requires them to give back some premium if they've charged us excess. But it takes a full year before we get any of that back. So all the savings that these insurance companies have right now that are creating profits – We'll get a little bit of that back, but not till the end of 2021. And if you lost your job or you, you're struggling financially, waiting till October of 2021 doesn't help much. And also, all of this money that the insurance companies aren't spending for, our, for the appointments that we're not having and the heart attacks we're not having, they invest that money. Instead of it going back into our pockets, it's sitting in their bank accounts. Even if they do eventually give it back, they're sitting on just – hundreds of millions of dollars in extra income because they've got nothing else to do with it than invest it. What, it what should is, be back in our hands. What is Johnny Ratepayer to do about it? Well, you know, John, unfortunately, uh, we are so subject to the power of these health insurance companies. This is a question of making sure that, for one thing, uh, there's some pressure on these companies by well, talking about it, talking to your lawmakers about it, letting them know that you can't believe they're sitting around uh, raising rates while they're standing on a windfall. So I think that part of this is just talking about it, letting people know, because we've had a conversation about auto insurance and the public heard about it. And we have, for example, the insurance commissioner in California, uh, Commissioner Lara, ordered the auto insurance companies to give back money, but he doesn't have the same authority over those health insurers. So we've just got to raise our voices and make sure that we protect it. You know, it would serve them all right if we all got sick. <laughs> there's there's this question as to whether or not we're all going to start getting the heart attacks when we start <laughs> moving again. I'm not recommending that, but when we get up is, from the, the couch, health, yeah, when we get up from the couch. But right now, right now, they're sitting on a lot of money. I don't blame them for getting the premiums wrong because who could have predicted the pandemic? But they, I hold these insurance companies responsible for not returning some of that excess premium that we've been paying. All and right. They need to face the facts. Douglas Heller, consultants, uh, insurance expert, Consumer Federation of America. Doug, thanks. Firefighting is already one of the most dangerous jobs in the country, but now fire crews have to face the additional risk of getting infected with coronavirus. So fire agencies across the country they're trying to adapt to the coronavirus era through a consistent supply of protective equipment, along with additional virus preventative measures to day-to-day emergency response planning. KYW's Matt Leon spoke with Tom Kane, trustee of the local 22 Philadelphia Firefighters and Paramedics Union, about how fire companies have had to adjust during the pandemic. So this has been a, a surreal last few months for all of us here during the midst of the pandemic. Uh, how has life changed for you and 
firefighters and, and rescue responders here uh, during the pandemic? How was uh, life tangibly different? Well, um, I have been on the fire department for 20, close to going on 29 years now. And uh, I got promoted to chief. My first field assignment was back in March, just in time for this pandemic to kick off. Fortunately, I, I was uh, sent to a place where uh, it's all friends, all guys I'd worked with previously. So it wasn't, I didn't have to establish relationships, uh, but I did have to deal with uh, this as, as everyone else did as well. So dealing with a normal situation, uh, there's a lot of things that go involved with running a firehouse and a battalion. But uh, this added so many new ones. Uh, I do have to credit the fire department and all the members, all our members of Local 22, uh, to the fine job they've done uh, in reacting to it. But it is, it's so much different because we, well, we've learned a lot in the last uh, eight months now, seven, seven and a half months uh, since the pandemic kicked off. But we're still learning a lot more. There's so much that we don't know. Initially, when it kicked off, we're thinking it was their, their virus. In the, you know, where, where it originated throughout the world, and all of a sudden, then it hit home. So we had the issues that we had to deal with, making sure when we're, um, we're wearing the proper masks, when we're out dealing with people, certain types of call, medical calls, they're the ones that really uh, are where it hits home, where you really have to be careful. When you're dealing with a patient with respiratory issues, that's where uh, the virus can be spread. So a lot of precautions, a lot of separate uh, personal protective equipment or PPE had to be issued uh, that we didn't normally carry, or if we did, we had very small amounts of it, uh, such as the M95 mask, uh, and and also gowns. When you're dealing with this stuff, um, you know, with, with patients who have uh, COVID or uh, suspected to have COVID, you have to gown up. You have to do a lot of protection on yourself and your uh, your team to make sure that we don't get it. Um, so so anytime on a medical call, and we're dealing with that, or or a code, if you're doing CPR on somebody, that type of activity is going to enhance um, spread of, of the virus. So there are definitely precautions had to be taken for that. So it really shined everything we knew what to do. We had to change. We had to, instead of starting from, uh, you know, step one to 10, we had to go back three steps. So before we even do step one, we have to do so many steps to be ready for that. Now that's just on the EMS side. When you talk about the fire side, and this is where it gets sneaky because we we go in things and, and on different runs for different reasons, and we're thinking uh, whether it be an alarm system, whether it be a, a fire situation, or, or whatever type, and we're thinking, and I don't want to say we get tunnel vision, but we do kind of lock in on the reason we're called for and if, and what's facing us at that moment. But what we don't sometimes think of is all the people that are around us and are around the scene may be contagious. And, and that's a secondary thing that we're not thinking of because uh, uh, the building's on fire. We're going to make sure we put the fire out. But what we have to be careful of is the people who are in the, you know, in addition to dr addressing the, uh, any possible victims or residents who are home at the fire and the bystanders that gather around and then the people, other people that everybody comes to look at the fire, how many of those people are COVID positive? And do we have, we have to make sure we maintain our, our distance and separation from those and keep that mindset that this is everywhere. We have to be careful of it in everything we do. How is your PPE situation? How has it been? Have you been able to to get what you need for the most part? Has it ebb and flowed depending upon uh, where we are in the pandemic? Uh, and where are you now? Well, we've been fortunate. Um, Commissioner Teal's been, he's done a great job stockpiling uh, as much as he can get his hands on. And our supplies have been uh, adequate, uh, more more than adequate. We've had, uh, we've had what we needed 
He, we also uh, developed the, the members who were in the medic units have, in addition to their SCBA mask, which we wear for fires, there's an attachment, we can, a filter that we can put in there that is M95, actually it's greater than M95 capable. And uh, it would protect them if, if we don't have the masks themselves, we put this on uh, with our SCBA mask and that would protect us as well. So we've been, we've been pretty good in that regard. Uh, and that's for, uh, you know, it, our cooperation with, with local, 20, local 22 with the fire department um, has been a great, great team, great operation and uh, supplies are not uh, a major issue. Kind of going back to what you said before from the rescue side, do you have to assume every call is a COVID possibility? Is it just easier to work from that and go backwards? Well, uh, that's what we usually call universal precautions. Whenever, before COVID, pre-COVID, when, uh, back, way back when I was in EMT school, back in 1990, whatever, the, the first thing they teach is universal precaution. And it was seen safe, gloves on. You know, it's seen safe, gloves on. And that was because you want to assume that any, everybody has something. So if you go in with that um, mindset, you won't be surprised when somebody does. The problem is different things require different levels of PPE. So if, if, if you deal with somebody who has it and you have your mask on, they have their mask on, uh, and, and they're not dealing with severe, you're not treating in a, in a respiratory situation, you know, you, you don't need all the super stuff. But if, once you start getting into certain levels of treatment, you need everything. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has revised its guidance saying the coronavirus can spread more than six feet through airborne particles that linger in the air. That may be driving up the frenzy shopping of air filtration systems across the country. There are just not enough air purifiers to go around right now, with some people saying air filtrations are as popular as toilet paper was back in April. WBBM's Rob Hart spoke with Jennifer Jolly, USA Today tech life columnist and the founder of techish.com in San Francisco. Air filtration systems will be to late 2020 what toilet paper was to the beginning of the pandemic. That is, it's the item that everyone's going to have. It's going to fly off the shelf and it will be uh, out of uh, circulation for a long time. Uh, Is it possible for, for something like that to happen? Absolutely. Air purifiers have been identified as possibly helping prevent the spread of COVID-19 since it's an airborne particle. Uh, Air purifiers with HEPA or high efficiency particulate air filters uh, can capture at least 99.97% of airborne particles that are really, really tiny in size, like a fraction of the size of a human hair. So that's incredible in and of itself, but also due to all the smoke that we've been having here in the West, they are already flying off the shelves. So we're seeing already shortages in most of the kind of medium to less expensive um, and even the run on the higher expensive, the $1,000 and more. So definitely it's something worth looking into. And also it's not a replacement. It can't alone keep you from getting sick with COVID or the flu or whatever other kinds of bugs might be in your house. It's in addition to the mask, the social distance, and all of the other precautions people should be taking right now. Now, these air air purification systems, I mean, we're not talking about like the giant, you know, uh, units that you put on a, a full building HVAC uh 
system. We're talking about, I mean, for lack of a better word, the smaller, uh, the smaller kind of, they look like fans that you would see, well, yeah. formerly in the Sharper Image catalog. Um, but <laughs> w- w- what are some of the, the easy to use, easy to obtain uh, air filters in the consumer market? For as little as $100, the Lavoit Core 300 is a solid pick for small bedrooms, offices, or nurseries. I just reviewed 12 of these, a dozen of these consumer home air cleaners. And they start for as little as $100. They go all the way up to $1,200. And that's for the Molecule, the brand new um, Molecule Pro. And that uses a Pico filtration device, but it does pass the performance criteria by the FDA guidelines for use, uh, use in reducing exposure to things like COVID in healthcare settings. So if you want to fork over more than $1,000, you can get healthcare setting uh, type devices, but as little as $100, you can clean up a space, say your office or your the air in your room. And the differences between the lower price and the higher price is going to be aesthetics, how it looks, and then how often it refreshes all of the air in a certain amount of space. So when you go out to buy an air cleaner or air purifier, you want to make sure that you find one that's the right size for your space. That's the biggest thing to look for. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Rate and review if you'd like, and stay well.